And we are in Genesis chapter 2 this morning as we work our way through this first book of the Bible, Genesis. As you're turning there, let me tell you what Graham Goldsworthy said about the Bible and God's plan. Graham Goldsworthy is an Australian Bible scholar who's written several books on biblical theology. And he has suggested that the overarching theme for the Bible is God's kingdom. And then he defines the kingdom of God as God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. If you think about it, we find those elements of God's kingdom in every era, every covenant era of the Bible. From the garden, to the promised land, to the temple, to the indwelling Holy Spirit in the new covenant, to the new heaven and the new earth. God has a people, and he dwells with them, and he graciously leads them or rules over them. That's what the Bible is all about. That's what his plan is all about. That's really what we need to get our arms around to better understand the Bible. It's what we need to get our arms around to live out in everyday life. It's what we were made for. It's why God created the world. And we're certainly seeing these things in the early chapters of Genesis. And they come into clearer focus today in today's passage of Genesis chapter 2. As we now get a second creation account. A second creation account. Not one in contradiction to the one in Genesis 1. But one that is distinct and complementary to the account that we have in Genesis 1. And I'll explain more later on on how those two creation accounts relate. But first, let's read our passage for today so that we know what we're talking about. Let's start in verse 4 of chapter 2 of Genesis. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord, cre- the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we will stop there for this week. The story continues with the creation of Eve, and we'll save that for next week. Certainly enough for us to chew on here, stopping at verse 17. Let me begin with what I'd call introductory matters. Introductory matters. There are a few different introductory matters that arise from verse 4, and they really help us to think through how the creation account of Genesis 1 relates and compares and contrasts to the creation account of Genesis 2. And let's start with the first phrase in verse 4. These are the generations. That should stand out to us because at this point there are no generations, plural. What is this? It's curious. Perhaps there's something more to it. And indeed there is. If we read on in Genesis, we'll keep finding this phrase, these are the generations. Ten times in the book of Genesis we find that phrase. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. I'll just show you a couple. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And then chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And you can find the rest on your own later on. They are mile markers for the book of Genesis. They are structural elements that mark out sections. They tell us when a new section is beginning. So we'll pay attention to these when we come across them as we work through Genesis in upcoming weeks. But the first occurrence here, chapter 2, verse 4, signals that a shift has taken place. A new section is beginning. This is doing something different than what came before. And notice how God is spoken of in this pivotal verse. He is called the Lord God. This was the day when the Lord God made these things. And this is new because in chapter 1, God was referred to as God. In Hebrew, it's Elohim. 35 times in chapter 1, God is referred to as God. And that's a fitting way to refer to God in his creative work because it reflects his deity and his power. But when we see Lord in all small caps, like you probably have in verse 4 in your English Bible, that's the translation of God's personal name, Yahweh. God's personal name. That name that he first disclosed to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3 when Moses said, all right, I'll go to Pharaoh and tell him, let the people go, but who shall I say sent me? What God? What's your name? And God said, Yahweh. I am who I am. I'm the eternal, self-existent one, the only God. Yahweh is not only God's personal name, it's his covenant name. It's his name for saving people and revealing himself savingly to them. Genesis 1 and 2 are not the sloppy editorial work where someone took two different authors' accounts of creation and clumsily slapped them together. 
Therefore, we shouldn't conclude that Genesis 1 is just the account of one guy who refers to God as God, Elohim, and then Genesis 2 is a different account from a different guy who likes to refer to God as Lord God or Yahweh Elohim. No, there's purpose. Because in Genesis 2, the retelling of the parts of creation there is more personal. It's more personal. Hence the more personal name for God in Genesis 2. Genesis 2 is not just creational, it is also covenantal, as we will see in a bit. Genesis 1 is the big picture. Stars, plants, creeping things, and then creation of man and woman. And each of those get their day, almost equally. But Genesis 2 is up close and personal. It's on the ground. It focuses on the creation of man. The story of his creation is slown down. And God places him here uniquely in a garden. Some have said that Genesis 1 is celestial, while Genesis 2 is terrestrial. Or think of Genesis 1 like Google Earth. Before you type in that address and it zooms you down to Earth, it starts way up above and then moves to Earth. And then think of Genesis 2 like Google Street. I mean, you can see the nitty-gritty. You can zoom in on a man who's getting ice cream if you can find him. Genesis 1 is like creation's birth certificate. And Genesis 2 is like the family photo album. And perhaps that is why the order of the phrase, heavens and the earth, is switched in verse 4. Did you notice that? It's subtle, but I think it could be important. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 1 moves from heaven to earth. Genesis 2 starts at the earth, on the ground. All right, so now we're ready to move past these introductory matters. Let me suggest three categories of the creation account in Genesis 2. One is, is this, the creation before man. The creation before man. In verse 5, this was when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Which may get you to scratch your head a bit if you've been following closely to chapter 1. Remember in Genesis 1, God created vegetation on day 3 and created man and woman on day 6. So how can Genesis 2 begin to retell the story of man's creation at a time when there was no bush in the field and no small plant of the field? Well, a couple of things to note. The words for bush and plant probably refer here to what we would call shrubs. Shrubs, like not wild vegetation in the wilderness, but the stuff of gardens in front yards, groomed plants and bushes. This was a time and a place when there were no groomed bushes there in that place. So another clue 
to what verse 5 means is this language of being in the land and of the field. Land can mean earth. Land can mean dirt. But land can also mean plot of land, just like it does in the English. And I think that's the case here. This is referring to a certain plot of land in a specific field. This is geospecific. It's a place. And there, God will create a garden. But to begin, there was this time when, the rest of verse 5, the Lord God had not caused it to rain on that specific land yet. And there was no man to work that specific ground yet. And so verse 6, a mist, or, or it could be a stream, a stream was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. It's almost as if God is preparing this particular plot of land for something special. And indeed he is. There's creation before man, another category. Secondly, there's the creation of man in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. We learned in Genesis 1 that God created man in his image. Male and female, he created them. Well, chapter 2, verse 7, retells the story with now more detail. And again, it's, it's up close and personal. God is here, hands-on. He doesn't have hands, but if he did, it would be literally hands-on. It's almost face-to-face. -face. It's, it's with his breath. It's intimate. God has created human beings as physical creatures. In fact, from the dust. You might ask, is that literal? They really take dust and make Adam out of dust? Well, I don't know. It could be symbolic of something. And it could be literal. God can do whatever he wants. My colleague Chase told me this week, being a, an art major who's worked with ceramics, he said, yeah, you can't make anything from dust. I was like, well, what's this? You can't make anything from dust. You, you don't put dust in anything to, to build something else. And so, so that would be really just like our God, wouldn't it? To just use the unusable like dust. But man is not just a physical creature from dust. God breathed the breath of life literally into his face. And then he was alive. And only then was he alive. God gives life. And not just life. Animals have life, but they weren't created in this sort of hands-on, intimate way. No, as we saw last week, human beings are made in God's image. And we said last week that there are many different ways in which the image of God is reflected in human beings uniquely among all of God's creation. The one thing that is reflected in human beings is that they have a soul. They uniquely have a soul. They are eternal beings. They have the breath of God in them in a way that animals don't. They have understanding. 
Elihu spoke well of this to his friend Job. In Job 32, Elihu says, It is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. Understanding comes from God. Homo sapiens. Homo sapien means thinking man. That's who we are. That's what separates us from the other creatures that we were made to understand. It's been said that some of the more sophisticated animals in the animal kingdom actually do have consciousness. But they don't have consciousness of consciousness. That's what we have. That's what makes us unique. We have consciousness of consciousness. We can ponder our pondering. We can think about our thinking. Dogs may do some thinking, but they don't think about their thinking. And yet, from another angle, you could say, we're not all that. We're frail, made from dust, dependent on God, utterly dependent. No life, no breath, no soul without him. And that should cause some humility. John Calvin gets at that when he says, one must be exceedingly stupid if he doesn't learn humility from being formed of clay. Nevertheless, at the same time, there is a peculiar dignity of man shown in that he was gradually formed with a special privilege that he might outshine all the creatures. Humility and dignity created specially and intimately by, by God and created utterly dependent upon him for life. Without breath of God in us, we would be nothing but a bag of bones. But instead, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. A third category is creation of the garden. There's creation before man, creation of man, and now the creation of the garden starts in verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put man. It's an actual place. It's not like Rivendell. We don't know its precise location. It says here it's in the east. It's near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's a real place. And it's a special place. Let me highlight four components that we find in the text about the garden. Let's first notice its trees. Verse 9 talks about its trees. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So trees of all kinds, trees everywhere, trees that are beautiful to the sight, Trees that are plentiful in their food shows God's beauty and his provision and kindness, his handiwork, even in these trees. And you can find that kind of beauty and provision all over God's green earth. Not so much the southwest of the United States, but Elsewhere, you've seen it, right? You've seen pictures. You've been to places where it is green. It's a canopy. It's lush and plentiful and beautiful. But, but this is even 
more special. This is Eden, which means delight or paradise. Ezekiel called it the garden of God. There are trees, and then there are two specific trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There isn't actually a whole lot that the Bible teaches us about what these two trees are or what they represent. And yet, we learn from the Bible that they are massively significant. We know that they come up again in our passage at the end, verse 16 and 17, and we'll get there in a bit. We know that they're very important to the story of Genesis 3, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. And the tree of life actually comes back at the end of the story of our Bibles. And I'll show you that in just a bit this morning. But for now, let's just let this curious first mention of these two trees in verse 9. And we'll leave it at that for now. And notice the second component. It's rivers. It's rivers. Verses 10 to 14, which I won't read again just to summarize them. They tell us about one river flowing out of Eden that flows into four rivers. Again, that tells us this is a real place. We know of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. They still exist, and we still call them the same thing today. It's a real place. But apparently it's a bit of a supernatural place. And I I learned this only this week. Again, my buddy Chase, he just said in passing, like everyone knows this, one river doesn't ever become four rivers. Rivers don't multiply, they reduce. It's like, what? What is this? And so I said, well, what about when you got mashed potatoes and you put gravy in the middle and then you, you divide the gravy, now you got, he said, that's a lake. Those are lakes. Right? And I still didn't believe him, so I texted my friend Clint, who did a master's in hydro-engineering or something, and I said, do rivers ever multiply? And he goes, no, only upstream, not downstream. They only meet other rivers and other waters and then become bigger rivers. Huh, how about that? But here, one river becomes four. That's either symbolic or it's supernatural, but it really doesn't matter. The point is what that represents. From the Garden of Eden goes out blessing. It's flowing out. It's multiplying. It's spreading. Later, in the book of Ezekiel, the prophet describes an end-time temple, and he describes it as having four rivers going out from it, that fill the earth. They get to the whole ends of the earth. They head out like the ends of a compass in all four directions to bless the earth. It's Ezekiel 47. You can read that whole chapter on your own later. Here's just a snippet about these four rivers coming out of the end-time temple in Ezekiel 37. It says, On both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither. 
nor their fruit fail. But they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. And their fruit will be food and their leaves will be healing for the nations. The book of Revelation picks up on that passage. uses the same language about a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 22 says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the streets. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. That's how our Bible ends. And how it begins. Right at the beginning of our Bibles, we have this theme of rivers. Rivers of blessing flowing out from God's presence in supernatural ways. It's God's people in God's place under God's blessed rule. And then thirdly, we come to its care. Its care. Care for creation. Remember, we saw last week that man and woman were given the commission to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. Remember, we saw at the beginning of our passage in verse 5, this was beginning at a time when there was no man to work the ground. Ah, but then verse 15, God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Now here we could reinsert everything we said last week about work and vocation and calling and having dominion and subduing and bringing order out of chaos. I won't review all that. If you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go back and maybe just listen to that part. And I'd also take advantage of this week just to say this about this idea of the Bible's perspective of our work. If you've never read a book on work, I don't mean a leadership book or a managerial book or how to get things done. If you've never read a good theology of work and vocation, you really should. Because we all work, even if you don't get a paycheck. You all have a calling or callings in your life. And it's so easy to go through the monotony Monday through Friday, Monday through Friday, and feel like, I do this for the paycheck, yes. Kids need to eat, of course. We want to go on a nice vacation at least once a year. That's why I work. So work is a necessary evil. But here it is before the fall. Genesis 2, Genesis 1. God made us to work, to subdue, to have dominion, to work, and to keep. And we need good help thinking on that and remembering that. We, we, we've got some good books in our book nook on work and vocation. Maybe you'd want to take one of those home with you today. What I do really want to focus on instead of work, though, is that language of work and keep specifically. It's actually more significant here than just about Adam's work, about his maintenance of the garden. It means more here than just that all human beings were made to work and to keep things. 
Now this language, work and keep, is later used for the priests and their responsibilities with the tabernacle. You can find it in Numbers 3 and Numbers 8. Go look in there if you want for the priest's work, work with the sacrifices and their responsibility to keep guard of the holy things in the tabernacle to keep them pure. So Adam then, back in the garden, he's not just a farmer. He's not just a vice regent ruling and ordering things on God's behalf. He is also, from another angle, he's a priest of sorts. It's priest language. Which means then that the garden is a kind of, get this, it is a kind of temple. You say, well, where'd you get that? Show me in the text. Well, Psalm 78, verse 69, says that he built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. And that's what we see depicted in the descriptions of the tabernacle and later the temple. They were to point back to and hint at the garden. What do we see in the descriptions of the tabernacle in a passage like Exodus 26? We see a curtain that has colors that reflect the sky and the sun and the lights. What do we find in the elements of the tabernacle and later the temple? You find wood and gold and stones like those in the rivers outside of Eden. Both the tabernacle and Eden had entrances that faced east. Both were at some point guarded by angels. Remember chapter 3, cherubim guard the entrance to the garden. And why do you think there are cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and later the temple? Or just take the menorah, the menorah, that, that candle light you've seen? shaped like a tree, isn't it? The tree of life. It's to symbolize the tree of life. And we've already seen in the book of Ezekiel, rivers flowing out of, flowing out of what? A temple. A temple. We've already seen that Revelation picks up on these rivers flowing with blessing. And what do we find at the end of our Bibles with Revelation but various depictions of heaven, different composite sketches of heaven. That's what we find in Revelation 21 and 22. It's like, heaven is like a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven is like the new Jerusalem, the holy city of God. Heaven is like a bride adorned for her husband coming to the wedding day. Heaven is like a temple, a perfect cube, like the Holy of Holies had. And heaven is like a garden in Revelation 21 and 22. So when we read of the garden back in Genesis 2, let's imagine reading it for the very first time. Let's imagine we're beginning to read the Bible and we haven't read the Bible and we're in Genesis 2. No, you wouldn't immediately see that the garden is like a temple. 
But as you reread the Bible and reread the Bible, you see that the breadcrumbs have been laid down and you begin to pick them up and you begin to follow and you begin to connect dots and make connections. And we certainly should here. But what's the significance of it, you ask? Okay, so the garden was like a temple and Adam is like a priest. So what? Well, it means that the garden is a place of God's presence. It's a place for God's worship. It's a holy place. It's not just a a nice pad for Adam to live in. He's got to live somewhere. God gave him a nice spot. It's not just that. It's more than that. It's God's presence. It's God's worship. His work there is priestly work done for God's glory. This is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And then we come to this last component of the garden. It's covenant. It's covenant. Verse 16 and 17 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this is a covenant, even though the word covenant is not mentioned in the passage. There's a command. There are conditions. Hosea 6 verse 7 calls this, a covenant. It's a covenant. It's a covenant with two trees involved. The tree of life, that symbolizes salvation. That's how Revelation refers to the tree of life. The end time tree of life in this new heaven and new earth. Well, it's the beginning of the book of Revelation like this. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And at the end of Revelation, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they might have the right to the tree of life and enter the city. Along with every other good tree in the garden, there was this tree of life which had a spiritual component to it. And the first couple could freely eat of this tree of life. But there was also this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this was literally the forbidden fruit. Now we'll talk more about it when we get to chapter 3. But let's just situate it here in this context. Remember that God gave man understanding and responsibility and moral compass and eternal significance. Remember that God made man to be a priest and to guard and to keep in his temple garden. God made him for God's presence. It made him to relate to God and commune with God and made him to obey his God and trust his God and to extend that blessing outward as they would multiply and fill the earth. And so in God's wisdom, he marked one tree 
off limits. Why? Well, we can say, who knows exactly, but, but he has a plan better than you would have a plan or I would have a plan. You would not come up with a better plan. He's perfectly wise. He's perfectly good. Apparently, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was off limits was to be a test of the first couple's obedience and their trust of him. Would God's ways be trusted as best? Would God's word be treated as final? Would God's warning be enough? The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Here is the first mention of death before there is death. It's an ominous foreshadow. And if we didn't know how the story goes, we'd be wondering at this point. He's not going to do it, is he? He's not going to take of the tree that God said not to eat of, would he? No way he'd risk losing this paradise of God. No way he would spurn this God who's so good and so abundant and so near. He is going to do it, isn't he? That would be our next, he is going to do it. We know he's going to do it because we see it all the time. It's very familiar to us. You take and you eat. God says no, and we say, yep. And we know how this goes because most of us do actually know just even, even if you know the smallest bit of the Bible, you probably know Adam and Eve in the garden, serpent tempts them, and they Indeed, we'll see that in Genesis 3. But we know that's coming. We know that has happened. And we know that we all die. The threat of death is something we see every day. If we're open to looking for it. It's something we feel within. We're finite. We're in a fallen world now. So where is the hope? Or how do you get from one garden to the next? Well, Jesus stands in the middle. Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, who was the true and better Adam. That's the language that's found in a song that we'll sing in just a bit. The idea comes from passages like 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, which says that the first man was from the earth, a man of dust, but the second man is from heaven. Or Romans 5, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. As it goes on, it says, As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For as by the one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, the true and better Adam, the head of a whole new race. Our hope is in Jesus, the perfect priest, 
We were made to be priestly in God's presence to bring him his worship. And we've all failed miserably. But Jesus was a perfect priest. Hebrews 10 says, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us now draw near to God's presence with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We need washing. We need cleansing. Only the perfect priest and the spotless sacrifice who was Jesus can wash away our sins. Do you remember that from the Revelation verse? It's those who washed their robes that enter into the city to partake of the tree of life. Have you washed your robes in the blood of the Lamb? Elsewhere in Revelation, it says that his blood washes us white. So, mixed metaphor, right? I mean, that doesn't happen. Blood doesn't wash anything white, but it's his blood that cleanses us, and so it works, and it's beautiful. Jesus is that perfect priest. So these themes on one side of our Bible, also found on the other side of our Bibles, Jesus is the key in the middle that unlocks it all and connects it all and makes it happen. He is even a river of living water, according to John 7. And he puts his living water into the hearts of those who believe in him. And from their hearts flow rivers of water that they will take to the nations. And we take it to you today. We say to you today, You've sinned against God, but Jesus is a perfect Adam, a perfect priest, your only hope for sacrifice and substitution. He is a river of living water that will put a river of living water in you that flows out. If you believe, just just believe, embrace it. Tell him you believe it. Tell him you want it, and he will give it. And if you've done that, then get this. He doesn't just forgive, but he restores. He reconciles us. He brings peace with God into our hearts. He restores us to what we were made for. There's no going back to that old garden, but there is greater hope than that still ahead. Didn't you love the last verse of our new song, new to us. It's an old song. We sing the mighty power of God. But there's a new verse at the end penned by our own Drew Hodge. We sing thy mighty power to save from our rebellious fall when from the woman's seed you gave a tree of life for all. We sing the wisdom that ordained the son to come and die And through his loss, your people gained a garden by your side. God's people, in God's place, under God's gracious, blessed rule, on account of Jesus Christ, the key, the priest, the the true Adam, the river of life. Brothers and sisters, let's live that out. Let's live out 
what we've been made for, what we've been saved for. Let's live out a, a foreshadow of what's to come in a new heaven, in a new earth, in a perfect new garden. God's people in God's place, under God's rule. So now, forgiven, yes, but let's not put out our hand to that which he forbids. Will we? Will we sin again? Most likely, yes. But we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, says 1 John 2, 1. And he's growing us, isn't he? Hopefully. You might be in a season of downward incline or decline. But, but hopefully you've been a Christian long enough to know that there's some ups and downs. He's going to see me through. I think there's going to be an incline on the other side. Don't you want more of embracing the tree of life and fleeing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Don't you want more of his presence and more obedience and more priestly service to the worship and glory of God? Let's do it for his glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for this glorious gospel and for our loving Savior. We thank you for his great work on our behalf. Thank you for all that he accomplished. We thank you that we can look to him, not a million things, but one, one person, God himself. We can look to him as the key to interpreting and accomplishing all that is wrong in this world and all that we need in this world. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in this, even as we sing now, for your namesake. Amen.